Oh, man. That was crazy. That dude, Nez, is a real hothead. Would not want to hang out with that dude. Plus, his hair is whack. But anyways, man, how are you guys this evening? How's your day today? Dude, how was Wreck? I saw some hungry hippo action out there. That looked awesome. Uh, also, where are my three pit bulls at? Where, where are they? Let's go. That was so awesome last night. I was like, I haven't seen you or Pitbull in the same room. So I firmly believe you guys were him. But man, you guys got some real talent. That was awesome last night. Who performed last night? Let's go. Give it up for our friends. That was awesome. That was awesome. Man, it has just been such a good week so far, and we're only halfway through. And as much as I love hanging out with y'all in wreck and seeing you guys perform your hearts out, I can't tell you what an impact you're making on me as I sit back there and I hear you guys worship Jesus at the top of your lungs. And man, I'm going to leave this place marked by you because of your worship. And we get to continue in worship together even now as we dive into God's Word. So open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 as we discover kind of what the heck did we just see. Quick review as you're turning there. Last night, we talked about what it means to fear the Lord, that having ultimate awe and reverence for God, and we daily surrender ourselves trusting Him because He is trustworthy, and we realize He's trustworthy when we get to know Him and anchor ourselves in His Word. And so tonight, we get to walk through as yet again our friends come to a life and death situation, not just once, but twice. And what do we learn from them, and what can we take away and apply to our own lives? So before we begin, just let me just pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. You're awesome. Father, as was saying, be the king of our heart. Father, I just pray as we have a moment God, of worship through the reading and the telling of your word. God, as we recall how you work through your servant Daniel and his friends, God, would you just impact us. Lord, would we walk out of here more in love with you than when we walked in. God, we give you all these things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have a question. How many of you have had like a reoccurring dream? Like it just happens, okay, praise God I'm not alone, right? Like you go to bed and you have a dream and you wake up and you go to bed the next night, have the same dream. When I was a kid, I don't know why this is like stuck with me, but I used to sleep in bunk beds. All me and my brothers all slept in the same room. And I just had this dream. I slept on the top bunk and I would dream like for a week straight that I would get out of my bed, climb down my bunk, go underneath the bottom bunk, and all of a sudden, I'd be in the middle of like the savannah in Africa. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I love animals. The problem was, is in the middle of this dream, I'm like checking out lions and everything. I'm like, this is freaking sick. And then all of a sudden, a rhino out of nowhere would just chase me through the savannah. I'm like screaming, like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And then I wake up. I'm like, did I die, you know, and I don't know, and then like the next night, there I am dreaming, I'm in my bed, I get out, I go underneath my bed, back in the savannah, chilling everything, and that same stupid rhino just gets pissed, having a bad day, and he chases after me again, and I kept having this dream over and over and over again, and I wish somebody would tell me what it actually meant. To this day, I don't know, I just think maybe animals just love me a lot, they want to hang out with me, but that's 
That's my interpretation. But in this moment, we see Nebuchadnezzar have something happen to him that's very similar. He has a dream, and he's deeply troubled by it. And he's going, what did I just dream? What did I just see? I need to know. You can just picture him. He's waking up. He's troubled. And so he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my closest magicians and wise men to tell me what my dream means. So that's what he does. He calls all his magicians to himself, and he goes, tell me what my dream is. As you can kind of sense this awkward pause because they're like, hey, are you going to like tell us the dream? And King Nebuchadnezzar is like, no, you need to not only interpret my dream, you need to actually tell me the dream and interpret it. And they're looking at each other like, do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know it? Nebuchadnezzar begins to get really angry because he's going, why the heck do I have magicians and wise men anyways if they can't tell me what my dream is? And so he looks at his wise men and his magicians and he says, if you don't tell me what my dream is and interpret it, I'm going to kill all of you. Every single wise man, every single magician, every single official in my kingdom. Friends, those officials and wise men included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these wise men, these magicians, begin to freak out. Our lives are on the line. What are we going to do? Do we know anyone who might be able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar his dream? And they discuss and they chit-chat with one another. Okay, what are we going to do? Who are we going to talk to? Bing, one guy goes, I know. I know. There's a guy named Daniel. And for whatever reason, Daniel seems to always seem to call the right shot. I don't know what it is about this guy, but he always seems to be able to call the shot. Let's go get Daniel. And so they go to Daniel and they tell Daniel, what's up? Daniel, uh, the king's going to kill us if we can't tell him his dream, but not only tell him his dream, but be able to interpret it. Daniel takes this to heart and he doesn't freak out. Daniel goes to his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and he looks at them and he says, friends, here's the situation. King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And if I don't interpret it, if we don't interpret it, we're going to die. A life or death situation. And this is where our story picks up in Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter so they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed and the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Daniel doesn't freak out. He doesn't begin to panic with his friends. What he turns to in this moment is the Almighty God. And he presents himself before God and says, God, You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You hold Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the palm of your hand. I ask that you would have compassion and reveal it to me. Friends, if you remember last night, I asked you a question. And that question was, what do you turn to first in the midst of trial and hardship? Because what I realized when I get squeezed 
And the first thing I turn to usually is what I'm putting my worship in. Maybe it's control. I'm trying to have control over my own life, so I begin to try to figure out solutions before turning to God. Maybe it's numbing out on my phone, and I just go through the scroll of death to try to forget about the situation I'm in. Or maybe I just rely on buying things for myself and money and realizing I I have an idol of possessions. My question to you, just like Daniel, what do you turn to? What is your first go-to moment when trial hits? Because in that, you begin to see what it is in your life you truly value and you truly worship. Is it God or is it something else? And we see in Daniel's life, he first cries out to the Lord in full dependence. He doesn't try to devise his own plan or make something up like Judas did. He submits himself to God. And friends, I have no doubt Daniel was scared. I have no doubt him and his friends had fear in their hearts, real fear. But here's what I need you to understand about what it means to stand resiliently and courageously for God. See, courage isn't doing the right thing in the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in the presence of fear. So in the presence of them being scared for their lives, they still choose in that moment to pursue God and honor him above all things. And to no surprise, God responds as we saw on the walkie In verse 19, it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. The Lord reveals every part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And not only the dream itself, but what it meant. And you know what I love Daniel's response? Look at verse 23. Daniel's first response. Mind you, this is a life and death situation. Daniel doesn't like book it to the palace as soon as he knows and tells Nebuchadnezzar. What is Daniel, what is the first thing Daniel does? He worships God. He takes a moment to pause. And he goes, before I do anything with this blessing God has given me, it's not me, but it's all about him. All glory to him. He says this in verse 23 of chapter two. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Friends, the Lord was everything to Daniel. Everything to Daniel. Even in the midst of hardship and trial, even in the midst of God answering his prayer, Daniel never got it twisted that it was about him. He knew that all glory belonged to who? God. You guys can say it. It's okay. I like call and response. All glory belong to who? God. Preach. See, you guys are preaching to me now. Come on. But then Daniel does go to Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, not only the interpretation, but what he actually dreamed. So what did Nebuchadnezzar dream? Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of this giant statue, this giant idol. And the head of this idol was pure, solid gold like giant, pure, solid gold head. The breastplate was solid silver, solid silver. As you went down, the legs of this statue were iron. And as you got to the feet, they were clay. Are you picturing this with me, right? Picture it with me. Head of gold, 
chest of silver, legs of iron, feet of clay. Do you got the picture? You see it in your head? Now, when everything seems to be good, all of a sudden, you see in the distance a huge rock get cut out of a mountainside with no hands. It just gets cut out of this mountainside. And this boulder begins tumbling down the mountain and then right into the statue. And the whole thing comes falling down, dust in the air, gone. And this rock, all of a sudden, what once was a boulder is now this ginormous mountain. Do you see it? Do you see it in your head? This is what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And this is exactly what Daniel reported to him. Picture of pictures of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He didn't tell Daniel a dream. God revealed it to him. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the statue, that represents you. That represents the Babylon that you rule. That represents the current moment of now, your kingdom. The breastplate of silver is going to be the kingdom that comes after you. Because you see, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die, and it's not going to be you anymore. It's going to be somebody else. And then after that person, someone else is going to come rule, legs of iron. And then soon, they are going to die off, and it will be feet of clay. But then soon, no earthly kingdom will rule, but the rock that is my God is going to obliterate all, and his kingdom will last forever. So Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and goes, hey, one, you're going to die. Two, your kingdom isn't going to last forever. Probably the two worst things you could possibly tell to a king who's in charge of your life. Like, if I got this interpretation, I'm like, God, can we maybe, like, tweak that? Just a little, like, hey, Neb, you're actually really awesome. You know, like, I don't know. But here is the report that Daniel gives. And I can almost picture this moment as Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar this. There's kind of this pause. But then Nebuchadnezzar responds. Look at chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered Daniel, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take out Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar praises the God that Daniel prays to. And he realizes none of my magicians who prayed to all the gods of Babylon had it revealed to them. But Daniel, who prayed to his God, it was revealed to him. Therefore, Daniel's God is the king of kings. That Daniel's God is Lord. It's kind of this pinnacle moment or what seems like a pinnacle moment for Nebuchadnezzar. Think about it. A pagan God who had spent his entire life worshiping idols proclaims God as the one true God. This is incredible, is it not? This is awesome. Literally, the gates of his city are to other gods, but he praises God in this moment. It's incredible. But skip down with me to chapter 3, verse 4. I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. Just four verses later. Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height which was 60 cubits, all you need to know is that's really tall, and a width of six cubits. And he set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This guy is 
like Dory in real life, short-term memory loss at its finest. Like he has this epic moment of revealing who God is and then he's like, yeah, well, idol, right? Like literally the next day. And everyone's like, what is going on? Friends, I, I want us to understand something about our relationship with God. Our relationship with God doesn't start by us cleaning ourselves up first and going, I'm going to do all the right things now. Now God's going to be pleased with me. God isn't asking you first to get morally right before coming to him. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have taken a shower this week? Dear God, everyone, thank you. (laughs) Raise your hand. Let me ask you a question. Do you clean yourself off before you get in the shower? No. Why not? That's what the shower's for. So why would you clean yourself before God when he's the one who cleans you off? You submit yourself to God and he begins to do the work in you that you couldn't do yourself. Friends, God isn't first asking you to get morally right and clean yourself off and then come to him. He's saying, come to me as you are. The one thing I ask is just as you submit yourself to the water in the shower, that you would submit yourself to God and let his love wash over you. Friends, it's surrender, not trying to do it yourself. You can't, he can. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. He thought, maybe if I just do better, God will be pleased with me, and that only lasted so long. This is my story. When I was a freshman in high school, I got in a three-flip car accident, and I told my God, I said, God, if you save me, the life of my brother, and the life of my friends, I will praise you, and I will praise you alone. I was a freshman in high school. Sure enough, all of us walked away, some with some pretty bad injuries, but I can say every single one of us is alive and well. But you know how, how much I actually praise God? I probably cleaned myself off good for about a year, and then I just went right back to a life of sin. Why? Because I refused to surrender my heart to God. I still wanted to be the one who cleaned myself up. I still wanted to be Lord of my own life. I still wanted to be in control. And it wasn't until years later where I realized God wasn't after my morality first. He was after my heart. He's after your heart in the same way as Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what Neb was missing. So what happens with this idol in chapter 3? Well, look with me at chapter 3, verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed to give a command is given, O peoples and nations, men of every language, that at the moment that you hear the sound of a horn, flute, lyre, and basically lists all these instruments, we are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be cast into a blazing furnace. So like everyone's going to dance around this thing like a psycho when the music plays and whoever doesn't worship it is going to be burned alive in a furnace. I don't know about you, it really doesn't get much worse than that. And so what happens? The trumpets sound, the horns play, the music blasts, everyone's dancing around and then Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees three young boys standing at the side not moving a muscle, not bending a knee. And he freaks out. He's going, what are you doing? You know what? Because I am so merciful, I'm going to give you one more chance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? 
music starts again. And once again, they stand there, unbent of knee before this golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar, true to his word, takes these three men, puts all their clothes on their back, and throws them into the furnace. Not only that, he turns up the furnace seven times. It's so hot that the men who threw them in burned alive without even going in the furnace in the first place. That's how hot this mess is. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to walk away, and then someone calls him, hey, king, come back here. You, you need to see something. Nebuchadnezzar walks back. He looks in the, the window of the furnace looks puzzled, scratches his beard and goes, wait a minute, did we not throw three people in there? Why do I see four? And sure enough, as Nebuchadnezzar looked in the flames of the furnace that he'd turned up seven times, there stood another image. I'm gonna teach you a, a $10 theological word. Are you with me? Let's learn something. Can you say Christophany? A Christophany in your Bible is an appearance of Jesus Christ in your Old Testament. And this, in this moment, is a picture of Jesus, God himself, standing. We just sang it. There's another in the fire standing next to me. In the midst of the furnace, there's God putting his arms of love and protection over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Nebuchadnezzar's like, come on out! Like, get out of here! Like, get out of the fire! Like, what is going on? And here comes these three men, untouched by the flames of his own sin. And what would Nez's response be or Nebuchadnezzar's response he says therefore I make a decree any people nation language that speaks against the God of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb this guy's a serious violence issue golly seven times limb from limb let's chill out let's try peace for one time limb from limb and their houses laid into ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way he again proclaims Yahweh as Lord. Not only that, anyone who doesn't worship him is going to have a real problem on their hands. Friends, here, here again, look at me. Where is God in the midst of the blazes of trial? Where is he? He's there. Where is he in a moment where they don't know if they're going to live or die? Where is he? He's there. Look at me. If you find yourself in the middle of conflict, in the middle of a culture that seems to be trying to burn you alive, where's Jesus? With you. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you in your pain. And he goes, I know I have not left you alone in the midst of it. I am another in the fire. I'm in the waters. I'm in the seas. The psalmist says, even in the heights, you were there. In the heavens, you are there. In the pit of Sheol, you are there, meaning hell. In the worst of the worst, in the best of the best, where is God? With you. And it's because of that we can come out okay. 
So what do we learn from this? One, we talked about it last night. We expect trial. In this world, we just expect it. It shouldn't surprise you, just like it didn't surprise them. John says it himself. I mean, Jesus says it himself in John 16, He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Full stop. Right? But fear not, for I have overcome the world. We expect crisis. We expect trial. We expect opposition to our faith. But we fear not, for Jesus, the God of the universe, is with us. Even Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.12, listen, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised by it. So what does that mean for us? We need to be on our guard. We need to be ready. And Peter says to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. So friends, it's not if the storms come and if the rain comes, it's when. But know that when that comes, Jesus is in the very midst of it with you. And because of that, as we talked last night, we can trust him because that's just who he is. He's not someone who creates and walks away. He's someone who creates us and chooses to dwell with us. That he can be trusted. Look at even Daniel's prayer. Like in you, you hold all things. The real power is not in the trial of this world. The real power is is the one who holds it all in his hand. We can trust him to be with us even in the midst of sheer trial. Friends, root yourself in his word because in there you will discover a God who is worth every ounce of your trust. And as we expect it and we fall completely into trusting God, it is in then we can persevere. Now get this, we can persevere in the midst of trials even if they don't pan out the way we think. Could God not have just been like turned off the furnace and not have him thrown in the first place. Could God have done that? Absolutely. So I don't think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at first really wanted necessarily to be thrown into the furnace. Maybe, God, could you turn it off, you know? And even if they died, what did he say in the movie? Even if I perish, I perish. And what do they say in the text? Even if I die, we die. God is still king. Because they realized something. The earth wasn't their home. That even if they perished, they were going to be in the arms of a loving God in paradise. They were able to look at the world and say, world, do your worst because this is not my home. And I can have confidence that God is with me in life and in death. You see, when we're in Christ, death has lost its sting. It's lost all power. And I can be confident and persevere because the worst that the world could throw at me being death itself is but extinguished in the hands of a living God. And here's what I love, and the final point I want to leave us with is the world's trials God uses to make us more like him. Perseverance through hardship produces Christ-like character in you and me. Romans 5, 1 through 5 promises that. Listen, it says this, listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith or made right with God by faith in him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope will never put us to shame. That in the process of going through hard times, you actually become more like Jesus. Let me give you an illustration. So, I used to be an athlete. Emphasis, big, bold letters, used to. Okay, and I was like, I need to get back in shape. I need to get my rear in gear, right? And my wife is like, please just do something, right? And I was like, I'm gonna start running again. And so I got some running shoes and I was talking to my buddy Daniel, who's an avid runner. And he's like, hey, Matt, what's your mile time? I was like, oh, well, when I was in high school, I was like six minutes. And he's like, could you do that? And I was like, oh, yeah. I put on running shoes and I went running. You wanna know what my mile time was? 11 and a half minutes. And I was dying. I got home, like, fell on my living room floor, like, never doing that again, right? My wife's, like, laughing at me, right? It was the most embarrassing moment ever. But when that first time, it was hard. It was difficult. The next morning, I was sore. But then I, I went at it again a couple days later and again and again. And through that trial, through that hardship, all of a sudden, my body started to become stronger. I'm able to run longer distances now. My mile time has gotten like two seconds better, right? Just too easy, just too easy. Uh, but through that process of going through that trial, all of a sudden I'm being built up. And in the same way as you're put in hardship, you are being built up into a deeper person of love, into a deeper person of patience, into a deeper person of compassion, and a deeper person of kindness, so what the world intends for evil, God flips on its head and uses for good in your life. What the world intends to use to take you out, God uses it to transform you in a way that the world could never dream. Friends, that's why James, an apostle of Jesus who would be killed for his faith says, I consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kinds. Because he knew that in the midst of trial, I'm becoming more like Jesus. So when you're persecuted by your friends, when you're shamed online for what you believe, when your teacher makes fun of you for holding a certain value, look at me, and standing resilient, you become more like Jesus. And they get a picture of Jesus in you. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He praised God. What would happen in you standing resiliently for Jesus that you in the process became more like him and a world would look at you and go, something's different about that. I see Jesus in you. So again, when we don't, when we can't trace our circumstances, we can trust the heart of God, knowing that in hardship and trial, God is not only with us, he's transforming us into deeper people of eternal love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. God, I thank you in a weird way for trials, for hardship. Because no matter what the world can do, your joy and plan remains the same and comes out supreme. Father, I just pray for me and my friends. God, that you would reveal to us, God, idols in our life things we turn to that are not you in the midst of hardship. God, maybe tonight would we confess those things and lay those at your feet. God, I, I pray, God, that we would view trials through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we'd view them how you use them. 
that you use them to transform us into deeper people of love. God, that what the world intends for evil, you intend for good. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, guys, take your